0: Lord, we come to you this morning asking for uh, wisdom and discernment as we open up your word. Lord, as we finish up this incredible letter to Timothy, Lord, I just ask that you would help us to to see ourselves, Lord, in in the means of application of this book. That we would embrace what Paul is um, screaming at us through this text. But, Lord, in particular, as we finish things up today, that we would see. Um, the the, the tenderness of Paul and his love for others. And, Lord, that that would resonate not only uh, in our hearts, but, Lord, as we fellowship together, as we think about who we are as the body of Christ. Allow me as your messenger to reflect your truth faithfully to your your people, and would you be glorified now uh, by how we hunger after your word, and, Lord, how we take it and how we digest it for your glory, in your precious name. Amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Now, I want to begin with a question. How many of you have friends? You don't have to put your hands up. How many of you have friends? The reality is that some friends are closer than others. A friend is someone you can rely on when you're going through difficult times. A few years back. Um, I was forced to resign a pastorate in a church near here. And uh, that time was certainly a great time of difficulty for my family and I. And yet it was an incredible opportunity to see God's grace and his kindness through the graciousness and the generosity of friends. Many people prayed for us and communicated they were praying for us. Uh, Many people asked if they could help us and how could they help us. Many people would come by us and, and, and hand us a, a check or some, some cash, and sometimes we would go out to the mailbox and there would be an envelope with a sizable gift and meeting a particular need that we had at that moment. We received cards, we received phone calls, emails to encourage us. Pastor friends of ours from around the country, Tig Vaneman, Randy Bachman, Jim Newcomer, uh, Fred Froman, guys that for the most part that you don't know, Um, specifically took time to write me letters and give me biblical counsel and wisdom. Even Pastor Matias in Bolivia said, Rod, just come down to Bolivia for a few months and rest. And I was really, really tempted to do that. It was an amazing time, difficult time, but an amazing time for us to see how people came to support us. And it revealed to us that we were blessed with so many friends, and so we should really be truly thankful. Now, the reality is that many of those friends are now part of Gateway, the people that came alongside us and were supportive of us. Now, as we turn our attention to 2 Timothy, we'll notice that this passage is full of the names of people. Did you catch that? That's just a ton of names. And that should tell us a little bit about what this passage is about. You see, Paul is anticipating his death. He is presently in Rome, in chains, in prison. He's been on trial for preaching the gospel. He's simply awaiting his sentencing and ultimately his execution. And so he has told Timothy, his son in the faith, that I'm already being poured out. He says, I fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. But now, sitting in jail, Paul is writing to Timothy and he is remembering his friends in ministry. And although he's lonely, he is also comforted. You see, there's something very comforting about the knowledge of those true friends in the faith. And, friends, that should be a reality for we who are the church. That it is the church that exhibits the kind of friendship that gives us comfort and certainty and knowledge during those times of trial. Maybe you're in the hospital at some point in time and something difficult is going on or something sudden and prayers have gone out. And guess what? You're thinking, isn't it great to know that I have the body of Christ? I have friends that are holding me up in prayer. And we could go on and on about different circumstances and trials where We're blessed and we're thankful for the body of Christ. So as we come to the theme then of this text, I want to put it this way. Although Paul is lonely, suffering for the gospel and facing death, Paul is taking comfort in his faithful friends. He's taking comfort in his faithful friends. Just put yourself in his situation. And he's reflecting now on all these relationships, and he's finding in these relationships comfort. Now, 2 Timothy, as we know, is all about hardship and suffering. And this this letter is a heartfelt plea from Paul to Timothy, and he's urging him to stay bold with the gospel in the face of difficult circumstances. Yes, Paul's difficult circumstances, but even Timothy's difficult circumstances, which he eventually gets to. But now, as he continues to the end of his, his letter, he begins to think about others. And the emphasis in this text is the presence of so many friends. Some are with him, some have deserted him, some have departed from ministry. Now, just take a moment, and just in, your, in your, your mind's eye, seek to remember those people who have been or are presently impacting your life for Christ, Just take a moment. Then think about the people that you have served with, that you've faced trials together with, that you've prayed together with, people uh, that together you've seen God's mighty hand at work. I just reflect on how God raised up this new church gateway and the people that were involved in that And how God just orchestrated those things. And it wasn't so much a, you know, we have to do this. There was a sense in which God was at work doing this. The way he kind of just worked out providential circumstances. And just the, the way he brought people together. And there was a consensus that was going on. This was all God at work. And experiencing that together was an incredible thing. Now, there's a sense that Paul recognizes that the world doesn't revolve around him. Ministry must go on. And Paul is comforted by the memory, the presence, and the faithfulness of his friends. So let's first of all look at what I'm calling the comfort of faithful friends. Paul has laid out to Timothy the need to not be ashamed and to guard the gospel. He's emphasized the need to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel, using himself as an example He's also charged Timothy to preach the word in a hostile context, reminding him that it is the gospel in the scriptures that has power. And now he's reflecting on his own situation. And he says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. Do your best to come to me soon. In fact, if you look down at this first little section, you'll notice these four words. Come, and then it will be get, get. And then it will be bring, and then it will be beware. And we're going to look at, first of all, come. Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. There's a sense of urgency in these words. Now notice the word come in this passage. Look at verse 9. He says, come to me soon. Verse 13, when you come. Verse 16, no one came. And then verse 21, come before winter. There's an urgency. There's a timing here that he's... Pushing for So coming from Ephesus to Rome during the winter season would be extremely difficult. In fact, the ships would stop sailing. And Paul didn't have time to wait to the spring because he might be executed by then. There's an urgency, even about the request that he has a little later on in this paragraph. So he's longing to see Timothy before his impending execution. He wants to see Timothy one more time. Have you ever... Experience that with someone. You have a loved one who's, who's close to death, and so you stop what you're doing, and you pack your bags, and you get on a plane, or you get in your car, and you're, you're, you, you have to stop the other things you're doing, because you want to go see that person one more time, or they want to see you one more time. And that's the urgency that, that, that seems to be coming from this text. Now notice verse 10 again. For Demas, this is the reason why he's saying come. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Christens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. So the question then is, why do you need to come? Because some have deserted and some have been sent out for ministry. And some, yes, are, are still with me, but it's just Luke. So let's just go through this list again. One has deserted Paul. What's his name? His name is Demas. Now, this is not saying, and I want want to be clear here, this is not saying that Demas has turned away from the Lord. You may have heard it preached that way. But the text doesn't say that. This is not saying that he had fallen into great sin. What it is saying is that the presence of the world has caught his attention. Now, we don't know exactly what that looks like. It's possible that he left his role and function in assisting Paul um, and went to Thessalonica because there was some kind of a worldly endeavor that he felt was much more valuable. Maybe it was a family endeavor. Maybe it was some kind of a business endeavor. We're not exactly sure. But I'm not saying that Demas was necessarily right in doing that. But We want to be careful that we don't make him out to be something worse than he actually is, right? Because the text doesn't say, all it says is that Demas has deserted me. In fact, if you want to look in your Bibles a little further down, um, you'll notice at verse verse 16, it says, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. So Demas was in that category, but there's a whole bunch of other people that he identifies as deserting him at that particular moment of his need and his trial. But still, Paul is... Lonely and struggling with the fact that Demas has abandoned his role at his side. Some then, secondly, have gone out for ministry. Crescens went to Galatia. Again, for ministry purpose. Sent out by Paul. Titus to Dalmatia. Again, for ministry purposes under Paul's direction. Tychicus went to Ephesus. Ephesus. And then if you jump down, that was, that was verse 12. I'm pulling it up here into this section because he's just another person who's been there involved in ministry. And then one has stayed, his name is Luke. He says, Luke is with me. Now, unlike Demas, Luke has stayed with Paul. He's been there from the beginning. So Paul is lonely, he's isolated, and of those who are serving alongside of Paul, only Luke is present. So we can understand why Paul is longing for companionship, for friendship, for comfort during these final days. Now friends, this this is helpful for us because sometimes we we take Paul and we we lift him up in in kind of this, this super Christian status. And we know that he went through a lot of things, right? He endured all sorts of suffering. He gives us a list after a list of the things that he went through. But what this passage specifically is telling us is that Paul was, was still a normal, frail human being. Certainly he was tough. And I think the evidence of Scripture is that he was a tough man. Certainly he trusted God and his sovereign purposes and his providence. Certainly, he was strong and able to endure, but he was still a human being and frail. And we know that from the text because it seems like he was cold. That's why he ultimately asks for the cloak. He was a normal human being in this sense. He was lonely. He valued companionship. He valued friendship. And how many of you, isolated by yourself for any length of time, would just... you would want to be with someone that you could talk to, that could encourage you, that you could bounce things off of or have some some kind of healthy discussion. But Paul still needed friends. He, He was still someone who struggled with sin. He still needed accountability. He still needed companionship and the confidence of faithful friends. And So Paul says to Timothy, do your best to come to me Soon we, we just recognize the, the relationship that Paul then has with Timothy, an intimate, um, uh, passionate relationship, like a father to a son. Now friends, loneliness is not something that God intended for His people. It just isn't. We're made for friendship, we're made <coughs> excuse me, for togetherness. Genesis 2:18. God says, "It is not good for the man." Or that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him or suitable for him. And, of course, the answer to loneliness, one answer to loneliness, is marriage. Another answer to loneliness is the home. Psalm 68 and verse 6 says this. God settles the solitary in a home. Something about a home context, something about a family context. And you got to go back to, I want to say the the, the the family unit in that kind of environment was, was much broader than what we have. We typically have, here's one family in one home. There they would have, you know, here's grandma and grandpa, and then there, there, there are more kind of buildings built around or up higher, and you have different parts of the extended family living all in the same compound. And there's an encouragement then, even if there's someone who is, Single to bring them into the home context and to be part of this this family dynamic. And so this loneliness is satisfied in the context of the home. And then, of course, as we come to the New Testament in particular, God speaks many times about the church being that place where loneliness is satisfied in all the one and others that are mentioned there. The church is supposed to be a place where people are interacting with people. that that people are not left alone, that they are brought into the fellowship of that church. And So the church is the answer, but it's also a responsibility for the church to look out for those who are lonely and to invite them into their homes, into their worlds, into their gatherings, into their circle of friends, into their fellowships. And we must certainly ask ourselves this question, how are we doing with that? How are we as a church doing with this Idea of satisfying people's loneliness by simply being what God has called us to be—the church. Are we welcoming people into our homes? Are we taking time to talk to those that are not part of our circle of friends? I mean, when we when we even stopped here for bagels and donuts, did you, by default, go and talk to the same people you typically talk to? We all do that to some degree, right? Or are we kind of looking? To see if there's someone who may be lonely, someone who may need to be encouraged, someone that we can bring into our discussion, into our fellowship time. See, this is, this is the kind of mindset that God wants us to have in the church. Are we looking to serve the lonely? So he says to Timothy, come. Then he goes on and he says, now get Mark and bring him with you, for he is use, very useful for, to me for ministry get Mark. Why? Because he's not only useful, he's very useful. Now, if you know the account in the book of Acts, you know that this is an incredible statement. And it's a statement of the beauty of God's grace and reconciliation. Because there was a division, so to speak, with Paul and Mark. And Mark ended up going with Barnabas, and there was this kind of divide, and Paul didn't really have much trust in, in Mark, and this is just proof and evidence of how God reconciled them, and how not only did were they reconciled, but here is Paul in his, might want to say, his last days, his final moments, and one of the people he's, he's calling for, one of the people he's longing for, is a person that he was estranged from, or that he had conflict with. Now, friends, there's an important principle here for us to hear that is in this text. The one who was useless is now useful for the gospel. Let me say it a number of different ways here. Past failures don't dictate usability. People fail, but they do not have to be put on the shelf. Or put it this way. The person who offended or slighted you can be your faithful co-laborer one day. A failure can become a close friend and co-laborer. Friends, not only does the gospel save you from your sins eternally, but practically the gospel is a means for us restoring our relationship with one another. This is the gospel applied to relationships. That person that you may be, feel slighted by, that person who, who maybe you did something against, but you don't want to admit it, may ultimately be the, be the person that you are longing for later in life to come to you, just like he is here with Paul. Come, get, and then he says Bring. Bring. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Well, why? We're not told why Paul is asking for these things, but I think we can imagine carefully. First of all, there's a cloak, right? What would the cloak be needed for? Probably physical needs to keep warm. Winter is coming. That's what it says in verse 21. And you remember the context. Paul's in a dungeon kind of a prison, which tends to be damp. Winter is coming, and a cloak would be wonderful to have to keep him warm. We, we just can't blow by this. Paul, again, our great spiritual hero, suffers physically, gets chilly, longs to be warm. From the history of the church, I just want to share with you what William Tyndale wrote while he was in jail in. Vilvorde, Belgium. He was in prison because he translated the Bible into English. Here's what he said. Wherefore I beg your lordship, and that by the Lord Jesus, that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine which he has a warmer cap, for I suffer greatly from the cold in the head, a warmer coat also for this which I have is very thin, a piece of cloth, too, to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a woolen shirt, if he will be good enough to send it. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary, that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary, that I may pass the time in that study." You just, you just get the sense here of the same thing that happened to Paul is the same thing that's happened to William Tyndale here. He's cold. And you would say that William Tyndale was a great leader in the history of the church. And yet he's just a man. And he's in prison and he's cold. You say, what's significant about that? What's significant about that is sometimes that we think that that as you know to be spiritual, we simply have to we have to barrel through it. You know, some of you are cold right now. Put on a jacket, it's okay. We don't mind. It's okay to be human. All right? God's created us as people who get cold. Now, he also says, bring the books and the parchments. Here's the, the spiritual and the intellectual needs. You saw that or you heard that in William Tyndale's uh, words there. What Paul is talking about here, though, are the Christian writings, the Old Testament scriptures, the creeds. Paul wanted to continue his studies to engage his mind and spirit. John Stott, I think, says it very well. He says, when our spirit is lonely, we need friends. When our body is cold, we need clothing. When our mind is bored, we need books. To admit this is not unspiritual, it is human. These are the natural needs of mortal men and women. Now, on the other hand, we're going to say it this way. Don't think that more suffering necessarily makes you more spiritual. In other words, if you're in a difficult situation and you have the opportunity and the availability to satisfy some natural human needs and you can do it, don't think that you're somehow more spiritual because you're denying yourself those things. Like Paul being in prison saying, you know what, Timothy, don't bring the cloak and don't bring the parchments because I want to show God how strong I am and how spiritual I am. No, he's, he's a human being who needs to be clothed, who wants to stimulate his mind, who wants to pass the time away in a way that would nurture him spiritually and, and would help him intellectually to endure. And I can't imagine being stuck in a prison, in a dungeon kind of a prison, for any length of time. And so he's, he's wanting to be able to pass the time away here. So bring, he says, come, Get, bring, and then here he says, beware. Beware, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he is strongly opposed to our message. So he says, he did me great harm. The Greek text implies here that it was Alexander the coppersmith that informed on Paul to the authorities in Rome that resulted in his imprisonment. So, Paul here is warning Timothy that when you come, look out for Alexander the the coppersmith, because if he did me harm, then he probably will look to do you harm. So, in going to Rome, hear this Timothy would not only bring great comfort to Paul, but he would also be in great danger from those who oppose Paul. What should you do? Timothy, should you go? You can bring comfort in ministry, or you're going to potentially face danger yourself. There's always a tension going on. And in fact, that tension is often realized when we try and do missionary endeavors. For example, when I've been to Russia, um, even as I've mentioned to some of you guys, we mentioned it as a church, the, the possibility of going to Ukraine. For some people, it's like, you mentioned Ukraine, they're like, oh, why would you go there? There's fighting going on and all this kind of stuff, right? going to Russia, it's like, you know, they don't like Americans over there, and, you know, you could get trapped over there, and there's always this tension between being used by God to do ministry and blessing the people so that the church can grow and be strengthened and be equipped, and the real dangers that are there, not only from travel, but also from the people, and that could be true whether you go down to Mexico or you go some other place. There's always this tension, but does that mean that you stop? Does that mean you say no This is where biblical wisdom comes in and and, and leadership has to take consideration of what's going on. But the point here is this, that Timothy was walking into a potential um, uh, minefield with Alexander the coppersmith being the mine waiting for him. and He's saying, beware of him. Now, let's just think about this. What is it that Paul is doing in these verses? Paul is gathering... Pastors together in Rome, Paul, Timothy, Mark, Luke, and the books and the parchment. Sounds like a a summit meeting on the future of the church. It sounds like they're gathering in Rome together for the gospel, okay? And and they're going to have one last conference together before Paul goes on his way into heaven. And the ministry continues on in that section of the world. They're gathering together to strengthen one another, to establish sound doctrine, to strategize about church ministry, and also to comfort Paul in his final days. Now, friends, this, these are all faithful friends gathering together, and there's great comfort in them coming together. But now the, the, the focus shifts in this, in this section, and we're going to emphasize here now the comfort of a faithful God. Having taken time to list off all these men who are his co-laborers in ministry, Paul states the present reality of suffering. Here's where I'm at. Here are some specific things that are happening in my life. Look at verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. It was the custom of that day for a defender And his friends to stand and appear in court together. The friends were there to give moral support. And at these times, they would be official um, supporters acting on behalf of the person that was accused. But when, when Paul stands before the court, there's no friend who's standing there officially with him. He's standing literally all alone. Now, the question is why. Well, certainly it could be fear. It could be fear. I mean, for example, if the if, you know, authorities came in here and said, Pastor Phillips, you know, are you going to continue to preach the gospel? And I would say, yep. Um, and they would say, okay, come with us. And I would walk out. And they'd say, all right, anyone standing with Pastor Phillips? A lot of you might be thinking, well, let's see, I got a family, I got friends. I, I don't have to say yes, I could say no. There's all sorts of different reasons why people would respond differently. And I'm not here to make a judgment on why you should respond a certain way. My point is to say that there could be different reasons why people wouldn't show up in court and stand with Paul. One of the reasons would be by standing next to him, what are you doing? You're not only associating with him, but you're identifying with what he's being accused of. And so I'm not going to be there. It could also be, and just hear this, it could also be Christians in Rome did not really know that much about Paul and his history. To be able to stand with him and support him and give, give words of, of witness and testimony to his character and all that kind of stuff. We're not exactly sure, but what we do know is that he stood alone and notice what he says. This is all kind of a backdrop for the next statement. May it not be charged against them. That might not be how you would respond. He is left alone, but he's not bitter. Now, Paul is understanding, he's gracious, and he's a pastor to the end. He graciously restored Mark to be useful, he pleaded with Philemon for, uh, to restore the slave Onesimus. Even when his faithful co laborers are weak, Paul is gracious, forgiving, and understanding. Now, could the same thing be said about you? Could the same thing be said about our church and how we interact with one another? Are you holding a grudge against someone because they didn't come to your aid when you needed it? Or didn't respond in the way that you thought that they should respond at that point in time? Are you angry at someone because they failed to do something that was important to you? What can you learn from Paul? that will help you now. Paul is gracious. May it not be charged against them. There's a lot for us to learn in that response. But not only that, he's standing alone, but ultimately he is standing with God. Paul's emphasis here on the desertion of his friends is to magnify the support he received from God. The Lord stood by me and strengthen me. Something similar had happened to uh, to Paul that is recorded in Acts chapter twenty three, and in that particular situation, he was testifying in the context of Sadducees and Pharisees gathered together, and they all got heated and started to argue with each other, and actually wanted to pull him apart. And the authorities had to come in and pull Paul out of that scenario. But this is what it says, Acts twenty. 10 and 11. And when the dissension between the Sadducees and the Pharisees became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him to the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, get this, so you must testify also in Rome which is where he is now. And as a result of his testifying, he's in jail. So why does the Lord stand by Paul or any other faithful pastor, teacher? So that through us, the gospel might be proclaimed. That's what it says here in verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the gospel or the message might be fully proclaimed and all Gentiles might hear it. Paul is motivated to endure because of his assurance that the Lord's working through his suffering to bring about the gospel to others. So as Paul is thinking about his past, he recognizes that God is working through his suffering to bring about the proclamation of the gospel. Friends, that is a wonderful truth, that suffering for the gospel is the means to proclaiming the gospel. And that being the case, we call or we can all be motivated to endure knowing that God is at work through our gospel suffering to bring about his purposes, even the salvation of others. Now notice what Paul says. He says, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Jesus ultimately rescued Him from the lion's mouth. The idea there is of lion's mouth, it's a word that describes extreme danger. It's a word that actually describes death. Now, what is the danger that Paul is actually talking about here? Is he recalling just one specific dangerous experience or is he he referring to all the times when Satan tried to devour him? What seems certain is that Paul was looking back on a time or times of deliverance that gave him fuel to face his present suffering. Now, friends, you know what it's like. God provides for you. You pray. You have a need. You go through a trial, and you pray, and God meets that need. When you face the next trial, what happens? You remember the trial you had before, and that fuels you now to face this new trial, right? It may be different. It may be a completely different kind of trial, but you go through the same process and say, God, I trusted you then. I'm going to trust you now. And you just continue going through that. And so Paul is recognizing that as the case. I, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Continue on here. It says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So this final rescue is a rescue from this world that takes place by placing him and his feet in heaven. Either way, whether in a present physical rescue or a glorious entrance into heaven, Paul could praise his God for his faithfulness to him, and he could say this, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's quite a statement. It's quite a statement to look back on your life and, and see how God has been at work and be settled that no matter what has happened in your life and if God so chooses to call you home through death, that God is worthy of glory forever and ever, amen. this is Paul's world view. Is it your worldview? I mean, how tied are you to this world? I mean, all of us... Do love to be in this world. Don't get me wrong. I think we do. We we love our families. We love our friends. We we enjoy the things that God has given us. I don't want to deny that. That God has given us a a world that there's a lot of fun things to do. There's, There's great things that happen because of friends and family. But are we so tied to this that we would not desire for God to have his way and bring us into his kingdom? I hear this. Jesus rescues us from the bondage of our sin through the gospel. That's the message of salvation that can only come through Christ. That is where God takes people, and through regeneration in Christ, he moves them from darkness into light, from bondage into freedom, from blindness into twenty-twenty vision. Then he, he rescues us from danger and persecution according to his sovereign purposes. In this process we call sanctification, There are times of struggle and difficulty, and God, through applying uh, his wisdom and and, and his purposes and us resting on him, takes us through different different trials and different times of, of suffering. And God may continue to allow our suffering, or God may rescue us from that suffering according to his ultimate plan. That is what he does. And then finally, he rescues us from this earth and plants our feet in heaven. That's glorification. So this ministry of of, of rescuing happens at salvation. It's happening now as we live our lives for his glory, but it's also something that is yet to come and it's something that we long for. To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. That is our hope. We long to be rescued by God. And that is the certainty of heaven for all of us who know Christ. And so, The Apostle Paul takes comfort in faithful friends. He takes comfort in a faithful God. But then he also finds comfort in a faithful church. In a faithful church. Look at verse 19 and following. Greet Prissa, that's short for Priscilla, and Aquila, and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, At Miletus, do your best to come to me before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Now Paul often ended his letters with greetings to faithful servants in various churches and various places that he administered. And we're just going to take just a few moments to walk through this list. Priscilla and Aquila... They were a godly couple who were great friends of Paul and were willing to travel for the sake of helping support the church. Their, their greatest ministry was discipleship. They worked as, as a team, discipling. After Paul had been in a place, he would, they would come along and they would, they would help disciple people. Then there's Onesiphorus, and it says, and his household. When I read that, I think of the Mohica household, those of you that have been to Bolivia. How they just open up their home and how the, the gospel and the presence of God and this ministry of hospitality is just laid out for everyone. In fact, in, in 2 Timothy 1.16 and following, this is what Paul says about them. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So he's speaking about him in Rome, and he's speaking about him in Ephesus. And remember, Timothy's in Ephesus, and Paul's in Rome. And so those that are reading this, they're, they're connecting with all this. They, they understand who this person is. Then there's Erastus. And he appears to be one of Timothy's peers who is now at Corinth. And this Trophimus, another of Paul's missionary companions, similarly on this last trip whom Paul left in Miletus due to illness. Now, you just got to think through this. Where where is he coming from? He's coming from Ephesus. Who did he take with him? He took Trophimus. But Trophimus was ill, left in Miletus. And so Timothy may be asking, so how is my friend Trophimus doing? And so Paul is simply saying to Timothy, hey, listen, just so you know, your friend Trophimus, he's in Miletus because he was sick. He hasn't abandoned anyone. He's just sick. Okay, So this is just some added information to help Timothy know what's going on with those who are the servants of the Lord, that are part of the body of Christ that he cares about. Then we have these four names. This is the only time they're mentioned in the Word of God. Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia. Now, by the way, if you're looking for a new name for your children... (laughs) This is a good chapter to go through, right? You can just kind of, you know, choose any one of these in here. Except for Alexander the coppersmith. But for those of you named Alexander, it's okay. Because there's some good Alexanders out there too, right? That's why we call him Sasha instead, right? So, all right. Now, can you see the importance of this passage? I just want to, you know, sometimes we can just kind of blow by these sections of Scripture. And yet they're so rich. Because they communicate the beauty of the church, It tells us that gospel ministry wasn't left to the apostles alone. Yes, there was the Apostle Paul. And yes, he's writing to Timothy, who's the pastor of the church in Ephesus. But hear this. It took ordinary, run-of-the-mill people to see it through. Just normal people like you and me. Even mentions there all of the brothers Some would pray. Some would accompany Paul on trips or other people on trips. Some would become pastors and teachers like Titus and and Timothy. Some would support financially. Some would be used to refresh traveling pastors, exercising hospitality, and refreshing them both physically and spiritually. Some would be key disciples in places that the apostle had been Some were used to pass messages along or to deliver packages, and others would serve. And many, if not all, of God's people would use their God-given gifts to help the church be equipped for the glory of God. see, there's something beautiful and, and enormous here about the body of Christ being used in various ways. It's not just about one man. Now, Paul may have been greatly used as an apostle, but it wasn't all about Paul the church needed paul it needed timothy it needs a titus it needs a peter it needs those those people that are leaders and pastors but it also needs the run of the mill people to be used by god to exercise their gifts And friends, that's why it's so important that we all see the the importance of identifying our gifts and seeing how those gifts can be used in the context of the church. And by running the mill, that's not a put-down. That's just saying, just normal, everyday people can be greatly used by God and, quite frankly, are the real strength for the body of Christ being what it is. Notice how Paul greets the body of Christ in the following letters. You don't have to turn. there. You can just listen. 1 Thessalonians 5.26 Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Still trying to figure out what that one looks like. Ephesians 6.23 and 24 Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all of you or all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Philippians 4.21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. Turn to Colossians chapter four. This is a a long list, and it's worth us noting here. Colossians 4. And I'm reading from the, the, the NASB here, so it might be a little different than what you have. We'll begin at verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin Mark about whom you receive instructions if he comes to you, welcome it. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that he may stand perfectly and fully assured in all the will of God, for I bear him witness that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. Also Demas, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha, and the church that is in her house. And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So there's this there's this kind of letters that are going to different places. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. So there's another pastor, there's another leader here. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Again, just, just this wonderful expressions of fellowship and partnership and, and, um, and joy and greetings. It's clear that, that Paul loved his fellow co-workers. It's clear that Paul loved his faithful Savior. And it's clear that Paul loved his faithful but imperfect church. And so he, he concludes this, this letter to 2 Timothy with these precious words. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Now, there is something significant there that we need to notice. The Lord be with your spirit. The word your here is in the singular. He's speaking specifically to Timothy. He's saying the Lord be with your human spirit. And then he says to the church, to everyone else that's going to read this letter, grace be with you. Or if you're from the south, y'all. Okay? If only they had, like, Southern Greek or something like that, it would be so clear. But you see, it's such a beautiful thing. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Matt and Allie, I-, I I couldn't say anything better than that. To you specifically, the Lord be with your spirit. And then to, from all of us, grace be with you. these, These are words of expression, words of love, words of partnership in ministry, faithfulness to what God is doing. Now did you also notice just in this whole thing, Paul has people going here and there and doing ministry here and there and some are with him and some have departed. There's all kinds of people ministry that's taking place. Let's just finish up here with some concluding thoughts, Anna. Number one, are you purposeful in cultivating your friendships? If God has given you this church, what are you doing to cultivate the friendships and relationships that are in this church? The reason someone may ask you, hey, have you thought about coming to home group, is not because there's a competition between home group to see how many people can be in their particular home group and the winning one gets the free pizza party or something like that. I'm sorry, Voss, it's not true. (laughs) The reason someone is asking you that question is because they long to develop a friendship with you, a relationship with you that is more intimate than simply the kind of thing that can happen even casually on a Sunday morning. So the reason someone is asking you to participate in the Bible study is not because someone wants to get little notches on their belt to say, look at how many people have come, but because our purpose as a church is to interact with one another and help grow one another and, and allow other people to grow us. What are we doing to cultivate our friendships? Secondly, are there any demises? Or Marx, or you might even add in their Onesiphoruses, which is hard to write, that you can still pursue. In other words, are there people that, for whatever reason, who are within the tent of biblical Christianity that you have somehow written off or that have wandered away that you need to pursue? who may still be useful for the gospel. Who may be wishing and longing and hoping that the phone would ring and that someone like you would be on the end of it simply saying, hey listen, I love you, I care about you. Let's get together. For the purpose of helping them back on the path helping them sort through where they are in their walk with God, but loving them tenderly, purposely, biblically. Number three, do you have Paul's worldview? Do you think of this world the way that Paul thinks of this world? Do you see yourself as a servant of God You may not be a pastor teacher, you may not be a Christian leader, but God has placed you in your context as one of his children with a responsibility for him. And do you see yourself in light of that responsibility, no matter what your vocation is, and that your desire is to be a faithful husband, be a faithful wife, be a faithful mother, be a faithful father, maybe be a faithful son or daughter, to honor God in those capacities. To see you, yourself as, a, as an employee who seeks to do a good day's work, but to do it for the glory of God. And that recognizing that you are a, a, not only a, a, a reflection of God, but you are a mouthpiece for him by what you say and how you say it. See, these are all perspectives that Paul had that was all part of his worldview. He saw himself as one chosen by God, placed into the world um, for a specific purpose. Yours might be different, but it is still God's purpose for you. And do you see it in those terms? Friends, these are faithful friends. You are faithful friends This is a church that we want to maintain being faithful to the things of God. And yet we are called to do that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of enduring that suffering, the barrage of stuff that may be coming our way. Are we cultivating the kind of relationships that we need to have so we can do that together? Or are we still isolating ourselves? Trying to do things on our own. I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you. Take advantage of Paul's example here and the friendships that he has. Lord, help us today. As we reflect on the big picture of 2 Timothy and we think about the importance of not being ashamed of the gospel, of not being ashamed of, of his, uh, the gospel messengers, and guarding the gospel and ministering the gospel. And, and, and enduring the barrage of false teaching and the false teachers that may be present. And, and Lord, even, even coming face to face with people like uh, an Alexander the coppersmith who want to um, get rid of us and would, 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 would send us to the authorities. and Lord, we, we just don't know what time is yet ahead of us where those might be realities in our context. And Paul in this letter has given us a lot of things to chew on, a lot of principles, and a lot of concepts, and a lot of instruction for, for us as a church to, to, to take seriously because you called us not only to endure, but while we are enduring to be proclaimers and those who are carrying and, and disseminating the gospel. So Lord, help us to be faithful as we stand for you, but Lord, also to be faithful to one another as your church, united together as faithful friends under a faithful God in a faithful church to do your will and for your glory. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.